people think innovation is about coming up with new ideas, I think it's about finding overlooked old problems, like something that has been hurting people for a while, a pain point, but it hasn't really received the kind of attention that you can potentially give it and then kind of go address it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello. Today, I'm talking with Thomas Waddell Waddellsberg, a man so good they named him twice. And we're talking about his theory of problem solving. And we're not going to talk today at all about how to look at a problem and solve it. We're actually going to not look at solutions, but we're going to look at how do you deliberately spend time stepping away from the problem? How do you look at the problem differently? How do you reframe the problem? Then how does that help you come up with a different solution? And then how do you move on? That is what he's found in the last seven years. His, his original book was about innovation. And the more and more he studied innovation and the more he looked at why things worked and didn't work, it's because people were solving the wrong problem. And so his book, What's Your Problem, is all about how to work out what problem we're trying to solve before we get into solutioning. People get solution blindness, or we talk some of the examples we share in our conversation are about people get emotionally attached to something and that makes them blind. Or they're sort of a learned behavior, maybe husband and wives arguing, and, and they can't step away from that to see how they could do it better. And one of the tips that Thomas shares is, is looking for, I think he calls it looking for hotspots, where is there a time when there wasn't a problem? And how do we take, how do we look at that as an example for trying to find our way through to a solution? Absolutely fascinating conversation with Thomas. I really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. Hello, I'm Thomas Waddell Waddellspork. I am Danish. Uh, I'm based currently in New York, where I've been the last 10 years. And I'm an author with Harvard Business Press, where I just published my second book, which is called Watch Your Problem, uh, which is on the topic of problem diagnosis, if you will, or basically solving the right problems. And I, 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 I'm just looking at your surname and I'm thinking, did you have to go to New York? Because it, like New York, New York, because you, because you, your surname, you felt, you felt that would be a great place to be. Frank Sinatra would have been uh, delighted for that, for that reference. It was, uh, <laughs> I, I probably uh, should maybe have gone with like just my first part of my surname. I had a discussion with Harvard about this with my first book, like, hey, you should call yourself Thomas Waddell because people can pronounce that. And I'm like, no, they can't pronounce it anyway. And uh, at least they'll remember the double barrel thing. It's like, wait, does that like, does he have a proud tradition of inbreeding in his family or what, what's <laughs> happening? <laughs> it's like being called Smith Smithson. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, um, and it's, what, what is it about, is, is there something in Denmark about the way surnames get created that gives you that surname? Or? Uh, no, this is also weird in Denmark. Uh, it, it is literally like, the, 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 I, I tend to joke sometimes that like the priest stuttered in, at the baptism, but the, 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 the real story is it's kind of like the first part of the family name is the, the original name, and then the family spread to different parts of the country. So we're literally like the Waddells from the Waddell-Spork area. That's, that's ah, kind of the story. okay. I see, I see. Right, fab. And when you're... Uh, when you're not writing books, what, what do you do? I spend most of my time either doing research or teaching uh, my method to companies. Uh, so I, 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 I do a good deal here during COVID, a lot, lot of kind of Zoom 
workshops and lectures, uh, which, which is really fun because like part of what I do is also to sit in on uh, on the discussions around specific problems that that companies are solving. And so that that always it allows me to keep abreast of what's going on with problem solving in practice versus just kind of being looking at the academic side of it. So that, that that's most of my life, I'd say. And did you, was there a careers teacher that said, Thomas, what you need to do is you need to focus on problem solving. There's a, there's, no. How did you end up doing this for a living? Uh, randomly. Uh, I uh, I mean, I can tell a story where there's a red thread in my career choices, but that is only applied retroactively. Uh, the, the truth is that I kind of uh, tried to build a startup and failed at it gloriously through my own mistakes and then started working with an old professor of mine on innovation. And that was fun. So we published a book together like eight years ago. And then through my work on innovation, I kind of realized, wait, there's this thing about problem framing or uh, solving the right problems that people are really, really bad at. And that just led me to recognize, hey, well, you know, maybe that's a problem I can solve. And, and so, hence, you know, seven years later, uh, what's your problem is, is getting published. So kind of, I, I think if there's a pattern, there's probably that intersection between theory and then seeing how the theory is actually applied by real people in in companies and then teaching them to do it better yeah if, if effectively well and so uh perhaps you could frame up the the book for us the context for the conversation that we're having today i always like to use the example called um, the slow elevator problem and uh, what that does is really to highlight the difference between analyzing a problem and then framing it. And the, the problem is you imagine you are the owner of an office building and people are complaining about the speed of the lift. And they're going like, hey, if you don't fix this slow elevator, we're going to break our leases or, or whatever. What most people do there is basically to take the problem for granted. Say, okay, the elevator is slow. How do we make it faster? And then they jump into action, like figuring that out. Or some might ask if they're a little bit better at problem solving, they might ask, well, why is the elevator slow? And they try to understand that problem. Great. Problem. That's not the right question to start with because there's this higher level skill called framing the problem, which is asking the question, what problem should we actually be focused on here? And it's the speed of the elevator necessarily the right thing to to focus on. And so if you ask a clever landlord about what they do when they have complaints about elevators, well, they might advise you to put up a mirror in the lobby because what happens is people go, they walk past the mirror, they go, oh, that's beautiful. And they forget time completely. Now, that super simple example of a slight slow elevator problem really just captures that core idea that most people jump straight into action. Some people know, well, wait, we need to analyze the problem first. But the skill that most people don't master is to ask, wait, are we actually analyzing the right problem to start with? That is framing. How, uh, is the problem framed correctly? Are we solving the right problems? Yes. Can we manage the perception of the problem rather than the problem? That's one... Is what you do. Is that's what you do yeah. with the mirror. It's like people... people People are complaining that they have a slow elevator, but is it that that's their perception? Yeah, and I, that's one type of reframing, right? And what what I find really interesting about that is you now drew the distinction, said, well, that's just the perception of the problem, but what is the problem actually? Like, is it the complaints? Is it that people are late for important meetings because then fixing like the mirror is not going to help them, or is the actual annoyance that's the uh, that's the problem? So even just that core understanding like of, of saying, what problem are we really solving for here? It's not necessarily a given that the first problem you're served up with is, in fact, the real problem you need to focus on. So, well, or even, or even I was just thinking, think, picking this apart a little bit. As you were talking, I was thinking, I've stood in uh, a client, I've done some work with Macquarie Telecom Group down in Sydney, and, and there they don't have mirrors, but they have TVs. So as you're waiting for the, the waiting for the lift, you get to watch you get to watch the the local news, um, and so you know there there is a landlord having having that problem, um, but there's uh, 
maybe the complaints come from people that you don't care about. <laughs> you know, there's, exactly. uh, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you know, because so often it's the squeaky wheel that gets oiled. You know, that uh, there's no, you know, how big a problem is this, and who who cares, and do we care that they don't like our lifts? And and uh, when I run this exercise with people, uh, kind of asking them to come up with more different framings of it, there are some people who suggest a solution, just like yeah, yeah, just shut down the elevator for a week and then see if people still complain when it comes back on. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? I've 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 been a customer in companies that they run. Yeah, exactly. Uh, at that point, you might realize the problem is that you are a bastard. It's kind of- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think what's important about the example is really that core notion of like getting into the habit of saying, okay, I have a problem in front of me, instead of jumping straight into solution mode, um, can I actually spend a little bit of time making sure that I'm focusing on the right problem. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, with your work, I, I imagine you might see that sometimes with some of your clients. Uh, do you know the? It's interesting because you were talking about innovation, and I think uh, innovation is a challenge for so many companies, and and it shows up so often around. Um, you know, I say to customers or to, to to clients, you know, who's your customer, and they say some of them have a definition of who the customer what, who the customer is some of them don't so then when they say so what problem of theirs do you solve you know going back to sort of jim collins you know what are you passionate about what drives your economic engine what are you the best in the world at and you say what are you the best in the world at and they and they don't know you know because they don't know why the customer don't, they don't really know what the customer problem is in the way the customer perceives it and they don't know why their product solves the problem and so then they say, well, our problem is sales. We need to sell more widgets. And it's like, really? And so one of, one of, the, one of the interesting things that's occurred to me over the last few days, as, as lockdown has eased in the UK, and you can go and eat in pubs again, but only outside. And it's a bit chilly when the sun goes down. Um, and so we went recently, we, last Friday, we went to the local pub where, you know, it's busy all the time, you know, pre-lockdown, it's the type of place you couldn't even get a table on a Tuesday night. And so we turn up there last Friday thinking, you know, let's go and show our support for them. It's going to be a bit miserable because it's going to be cold, but, you know, we like them, we'd like them to survive. And we get there and they've got small tents because you can heat a small space, you can't heat a big space. Um, and they've got infrared heaters and they've got fan heaters and everybody even though we, they said, would you like a hot water bottle and a blanket? And we said, no, they still brought one anyway because we, they knew we meant yes. And, uh, and, and we had a fantastic night. And then we said, look, can we book again? And they said, oh, no, we're full for the next 10 days. And, and so, you know, and then we went, we went to our, we walked to our local pub where hypothermia is your own problem. There's no tents, there's no heating, there's nobody eating and the place is deserted because everybody's standing outside freezing to death. And then, and you just, you just go, these people are really solving the same problem for the same customer group. And one, one has absolutely nailed it and they've done it with ease. And the other one doesn't even know why they're not full. I, I think that, I mean, this is an area in which I think more people are familiar with the importance of solving the right problem, namely when you're dealing with customers, like like if you take the lean startup movement or similar, there is a recognition in that space that, hey, we really need to make sure we actually understand granularly the problems that our customers are facing. And so you you kind of engage in it. And, you know, if, if you're smart and if you're running a pub well, you realize that people are freezing <laughs> and and you do uh, what, what, what that pub did. And that makes a tremendous difference. What, what I've found interesting is, even people who understand this when it comes to customers fail to apply it when it comes to other problems. So they might have a problem in their team or they might have a problem at home or they might have a problem with their strategy and they fail to apply the same logic. They, they, they just in those cases go in and say, okay, you know, well, let's try to solve this problem. And, and they, they forget all their knowledge about how to diagnose problems for customers when it comes to their own world, which to me is um, fascinating. I, I, one of the examples I share in the book is 
uh, Tanya Luna uh, and her husband, Brian, who used to fight a lot. And, you know, they had a great marriage, but they, they got into the occasional really like bitter fights over stuff like budgets and whatnot. And they started out saying, well, the problem clearly is our different upbringing. Like this goes way back. Uh, it's psychological, Freud, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then at some point, it strikes Tanya that, wait, there is actually an occasion where they had a really like non-angry conversation about the budget. And that was when they did it at breakfast instead of late at night. And she realized, well, part of their problem might be their personalities. But another part of the problem was that they tended to take fights after 10 in the evening when everybody's tired. And yeah, the second they might have had a glass of wine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, as as we know, alcohol always <laughs> kind of facilitates problem solving. Uh, the uh, and uh, what what your listeners can't see is, I think Dominic, you just had a sip of a beer there. <laughs> oh, look, it's um, it, it's an uh, alcohol-free beer. Oh, it's, of course uh, it is. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, totally, totally. Uh, <laughs> it's the same with my vodka bottle here stashed next to me. Uh, no, uh, the, uh, no, I mean, you know, that example with Tanya and Brian, I, I love it because it kind of, uh, it just highlights that there are problems we've been, in some cases, dragging around for years in our marriages and our, you know, work relationships and so on. And then this comes up and you start to realize, wait, there's actually a totally separate part of the problem that we can solve really, really easily. Then Tanya said 80% of their fights just disappeared the second they got into the habit of kind of discussing difficult things in the morning instead of it at night. <laughs> and yeah. so often people in that spec, you know, like there's that sort of learned behavior, isn't there? There's a sort of a pattern of behavior. It takes two to have a fight, but both people, uh, I was going to say unwittingly, but that's not, it's just like unthinkingly get into the sort of the tango that they're used to. It escalates, they have a fight. And it, often it takes the third party to say, what if you had this conversation in the morning instead? You know, it's, it's, it, in my experience, it's quite rare that people come to a revelation about their own behavior themselves. It, it, uh, that's absolutely true. I, I found uh, even when I run my, you know, when I train people in this, I run my workshop, I ask people to try it for five minutes on a problem that they've struggled with for a while. And in that session, people have aha moments in part because they are kind of, they're actually, for the first time, being asked to talk to somebody else about it. And it, it's amazing to me to see the difference it can make in, again, literally in five minutes that you can go in and get a new perspective on a problem you've been dragging around for years or in some cases, decades. Oh, I was going to say the reframing thing is is is, is similar to that, you know, where, you, where somebody, you sort of say, what's your problem? And they say, they tell you the problem and, you, and you're like, why is that a problem? And then all of a sudden they have this realization that 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 they that it's not maybe it only they see it as a problem and actually it's not a problem at all, um, and things can things can disappear. So what what are the what are the tools? What are the steps? What's the process that you? It's I I recommend a uh, you know at, at its simplest level it's really three steps: um, frame, reframe, and move forward. And what does that mean? Well, frame is just whenever you have a problem, you state the problem separately from the solution. So it, this could be super simple. It can literally be like you opening your mouth and saying two sentences to somebody else or writing like three sentences down in an email. It doesn't matter. But like, just put the problem on the table. Then you get to the reframing, which is you spend at least five minutes on trying to come up with different perspectives on the problem. So you, you try to challenge your framing of it. And this, as we just discussed, is best done with a couple of other people if you can, or just one other person that helps kind of see our blind spots. And at the end of that, you need to figure out how to move forward. Because of course, the big danger of kind of thinking too much is that you get stuck in, in kind of paralysis by analysis. So. It's, this is not a question of avoiding solution mode forever. It is about putting in a brief, it's almost like one of those pit stops in Formula One racing where you kind of you pull out, you quickly focus, and then you get back into the race. So that's kind of the, what the practice looks like. It, it's, it's Monday morning, a customer has put a problem on the table, and you spend a little bit of time just making sure 
that that problem is really what you should be focused on compared to what else might be going on. That's that's kind of it in in at the high level. There there's more to it if you want to get good at it. Like how do you get better at asking the right questions around reframing? But at its simplest level, like getting into that practice of saying, okay, I have a problem. What is the problem? Share it with a couple of other people who try to challenge your understanding of it, and then figure out how to move forward. Because if you take, if you go back to the uh, the slow lift problem, so if somebody says, "Our oh, tenants are complaining that the lift's slow." What sort of questions do you then ask to get a different perspective on that? So in the book, I share some different strategies for how to do that. One of my own favorites is kind of uh, the bright spots method, which is going in and saying, when did they not complain? Or what do, when do they not complain? So to, to try to figure out, uh, looking at the positive exceptions there may be. And in this case, you might realize that, oh, wait, they actually don't have this problem in the afternoon. It's only in the morning and around lunchtime. And why is that? Well, that's because in the morning and around lunch, everybody has the same schedule. Like they all arrive at 8.30 and they all go to lunch at 12. But in the afternoon, people are different times. Oh, maybe this is a peak demand issue. And could we solve that by spreading, like staggering the lunch breaks or similar? So I that's a favorite method of mine because it kind of forces you to get out of your negative headspace. Like when we talk about problems, we're in a space where it's kind of like things are going wrong. And the bright spots question, like where's the positive exception? That can actually not just help you find new information or understanding of the problem. It can also make you feel differently about it. And like, oh, wait, you know, I always have this conflict with my sister but when I think about it, you know, like we did have that car trip a few years back where we really actually enjoyed each other's company because we weren't kind of, you know, meeting in, in a, maybe we met in a different way. Like whatever it is, it just, there's hope, right? The, the, the second you realize that the problem is not completely unsolvable, you may have solved it before or somebody else has solved it before. I mean, that opens a door to, you know, Get, getting out of this, the fatalist approach to kind of, oh, we can never solve this problem. It's just my sister. It's impossible or whatever. I don't have a sister, I, I hasten to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I was just warming to your theme and thinking your family sounds very like mine. But <laughs> you've shattered my illusion. The problem's all mine. Exactly. And it would be a bit unfair to sit on a podcast and kind of slag my sister, right? Well, Stacey, she's just a cow. <laughs> <laughs> so um i think that that's that's one of them uh the other one is um kind of asking what's outside the frame and this comes back to the notion that we delve in straight away we say okay the elevator slow why is the elevator slow and then we understand try to understand that trying to understand how is this problem framed and what is missing from that framing a uh, classic example, there's a consultants, a management consultancy. They use this a lot. And um, when they teach it to people, there's this classic example that they use where there's a customer, like a client, they have a problem, they can't figure it out. And you don't understand what the issue is until you understand that you have, you've forgotten somebody, namely the customer's customer. Like they had focused only on the immediate link and they had like one step further out that was the person in the value chain who really drove all of the decisions in the industry. And their initial analysis had just missed that completely. That happens a lot. Like there's in political problems, there are often stakeholders whose influence we're missing. Uh, there, there are, there, there's a good chance that the problem you have first defined, there's something that's not included in that definition or, or statement that you actually need to consider or, or think about. I'm curious to hear, I mean, in the book, I share some strategies I've tested and kind of found really helpful for, for people. But um, what would your own kind of approach be when, when you have a, a client who's kind of complaining with a problem? Do, do you have specific ways that you try to approach that when you try to re help them reframe their problem? I don't think we've been doing it in a structured enough way. And I think I think taking the takeaways from the book will allow us to you know, use it as a tool specifically. But I think there's, uh, you know, I've got, 
I, I, I sometimes use an example. You, you were talking there about the customer's customer. And so when I was at Pier 1, we said, okay, we, what we want to do is, is we want to be hosting e-commerce websites. That's a growth area. This is a few years ago, you know, still a growth area. But, um, and so, okay, well, I, what I need to do, that we perceived the problem to be go and get some, get, go and find some e-commerce directors and see what their challenges are. And then how can we position ourselves to solve their problems? And so I found myself speaking to somebody, I found myself next to somebody who I wanted to meet, but I had to go to Austria to, to facilitate the meeting. So we're on a chairlift in Austria skiing. Hmm. And I said, Andy. My, my favorite uh, kind of get, meeting. <laughs> <laughs> how do I get to host your website? Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, Dom, I'd love to have you host our website, but uh, it's not my decision. I don't care about the hosting. It's like, ah, okay. So then it was, okay, well, who does care? And he said, oh, well, what we care about is we care about the platform. And the guys who sell us the platform, we ask them who we should host it with, and they tell us. So we went to we went to see them, and they said, uh, "Yeah, no, we don't use you. We use your competitor." And it's like, okay, well, but what don't you know? And they said, "Well, we don't know who's going to buy from us next year." And we said, "Okay, so you'd be interested in solving that problem?" They said, "Oh, that is our most difficult problem." So we did that. So then we said, "Look, there's three hundred, three hundred and fifty five to one hundred million turnover e-commerce websites in the UK." They replatform every three years or when an e-commerce director changes jobs. We could probably identify the 150 people who are likely to need to buy a new platform in the next 12 months. And then what we did is we created a we we created an event for them. So every quarter we pulled them together and we did sort of peer-to-peer -peer learning. And then we sold that concept to the the development, uh, the platform guys. And it was like, come and meet the people who are likely to buy from you. Um, and, and then when, and then when they won a piece of business, we picked up the back end. And so we were, we were driving our revenue, but solving a problem for an intermediate customer that had nothing whatsoever to do with what we did as a business. And it, and what I liked about it, well, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive and it feels a bit sneaky, but it's also unlikely to be copied by our competitors because it's, it's just, we're not solving a problem that relates to our product. We're solving a problem that relates to an influencer. And so quite often I'm talking to people and I, I, didn't, I don't have a methodology per se, but I share that story as a way of trying to get people to think about who influences the decision. Right. Beautiful. And I, and I think you're, you're pointing out uh, the power of storytelling in this. Like if, if you have to introduce reframing or to somebody or challenge their problem, it can really help to put a story on the table from your industry or just even the slow elevator problem. That can be enough for people to understand why you're starting to ask questions about the, the problem and so on. I have to say, as an aside, I kind of want to get into that business because like you're saying, well, as I was having my meeting in Hawaii and sit, we were sitting in <laughs> Sipping margaritas. <laughs> and I waited. This is different from my meetings. <laughs> that was a punishing event. It was it. It was a digital industry ski event, and it was like people on a stag do for four days. It was like spring, like middle aged people on spring break. It was. It was hard work. Yeah, sounds like the the whoever fixed broken legs in in uh, in the in the that city might have had a field day. Um, <laughs> it's also uh, it's it really showcases the power for me of kind of when you can go out and find a problem that nobody has really clearly identified because you will realize that sometimes like, even having that conversation like well yeah this is our biggest problem. That's music to your ears, and you'll sometimes find that for some reason people haven't really solved it. They sometimes just accept that, oh, that's the way it is. We can't predict our demand or whoever is going to buy our stuff or whatnot. And then you come in with a different perspective and realize, wait, there's actually things we can do here, uh, which, which, you know that people think innovation is about coming up with new ideas. I think it's about finding overlooked old problems like something that has been hurting people for a while a pain point but it hasn't really received the kind of attention that you can potentially give it and then kind of go address it that also means you you get meetings because you know try to call somebody and tell them about your wonderful system nobody cares um but try to call somebody and say hey do you have this problem 
like if we could solve that for you, would that be valuable to you? That's a very different conversation compared to trying to push a framework. Picking up on that, that's really useful because I think uh, so often clients haven't picked a niche. And so one of our clients, basically what they do is manage desktop, right? So it's, it's, quite, it's quite sort of non-specific. And they decided to pick accountancy. T-Tech decided to pick accountancy as their niche. So they said, we are the number one supplier of managed IT for accountants. But still nobody was really interested because most people think their supplier is a bit rubbish, but they don't think that anybody else is any better. But what they said is they said, look, we have a, there's a different technology, uh, robotic process automation, and that's that solves the problem for senior people or people having to put data into multiple systems which accountants have all the time. And so that was, a, that, that was a thing that if they went to market with that, they could get to talk to the senior partner in the accountancy practice. And then, and then because they fixed the hard problem, they're allowed to fix the easy problem. You know, it's like, well, what, the, what is the problem in the industry that might not be solved by your current product, but if somehow you could solve the problem, you get to get through the door. You, they get, they'll take a meeting. I, I saw that at work in Samsung. Uh, so I, I did some research on their European innovation department. And they had an internal challenge, which was somewhat similar in the sense that they had to convince uh, stakeholders in Korea, Samsung headquarters, to take a chance on new projects. Like, you know, that was their whole function. They were the innovation center. They, they tried to pitch uh, kind of breakthrough ideas to headquarters. And they tended to get it rejected. And they got rejected because people in the headquarters are naturally risk averse, uh, you know. And that that's not you know that's not a bad thing about them. That is a, a good thing in the sense like when you're in headquarters, your job is to be risk averse because there's a lot at stake. And so what I see in other innovation departments do is to get really upset. They're kind of like, oh, those there's you know, they're just laggards up there in headquarters. They're impossible. I want to do something else. Understandable. Uh, so the Samsung team did something different. They realized that they were not really solving for trying to sell their products. They're solving for trust. And so what they started doing instead was to pitch much less ambitious ideas that had a much shorter term focus. So once they had gotten some of those through, much easier sales, then the, the, some of the key stakeholders in Korea started trusting that they knew what they were doing. And then they got yes uh, several times to some of their really ambitious projects. So uh, interestingly enough, they actually solved their mandate. Like their, their mandate was to come up with breakthrough ideas by first doing something that was deliberately not their mandate. They were, their, their function was not to come up with small incremental ideas, but then nonetheless, that is what allowed them to get yes to the uh, yes to the some of their breakthroughs idea, ideas when they started doing that so very, to me a very similar dynamic well it's it, it's that it's the sort of understanding the customer isn't it we were doing some work last week with a client and people always talk about their widgets and their products and they use this sort of b2b tech marketing bullshit vocabulary so that they all sound the same and and they were saying look we, we do 24 by 7 support the, the customer should be very happy with that and it's like, well, how does the customer describe it? Does the customer get up in the morning and say, I really want 24 by 7 support? And they went, no, don't be ridiculous. Of course, that's not what they think. So, well, what does the customer think? Well, the customer wants to know where everything is all the time. Okay, well, why doesn't it say on your website? If you want to know where everything is all the time, we've got you covered. Whereas <laughs> what it says is we do 24 by 7 support. Why have you made it hard for people? Yeah, it's so fascinating, and they're like, right? And they just, they're just like, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. You know, we've made this hard, hard to understand. It's so oh, they hadn't done it on purpose yeah. at all. No, no, but it's natural to us to describe the solution we have, or here's the feature we have, instead of thinking about the benefit that that feature uh, kind of carries for the client. <laughs> it, uh, basic step, we do it all the time. Um, I think uh, so. Th that's actually illustrating what one of the other strategies I talk about, which is take their perspective, like literally that that act of sitting down and saying, "Now I am my client. What do I actually care about? What what is the burning question uh, that I think about when I get up in the morning?" I, there's another one I want to share because I love it. There's a this notion of clarifying and rethinking your goal. 
like what are, what does success look like? What are we really trying to achieve? And there's this beautiful story from um, uh, I described it in the book, and it is about a, a senior executive who is uh, in the weird position that he really loves his job, but he hates his boss. And so he like, I've had enough. And he goes to a headhunter and the headhunter tells him, well, you know, there's a lot of demand for somebody of your stature at the moment in our industry. So it should not be a problem at all to find you a, you know, a similar job in a different company. Great. The executive goes back that same evening and talks to his wife about it. And the wife happens to uh, be a little bit of an expert in reframing. And together they arrive at a different solution. So the next morning, the the executive goes back to the headhunter and he hands him the CV of his boss. And he says, can you find a new job for this guy? (laughs) Which the headhunter does. (laughs) And this this is a story from Robert Sternberg, who's a creativity researcher. And uh, 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 as as he tells it, uh, this is a real story. Like the, the executive actually ends up getting his uh, old boss's job uh, because the, the boss like not having any clue about what's going on kind of accepts that offer coming in from the headhunter and moves somewhere else so oh, beautiful, beautiful story right like my goal is to get away from my boss and i do that through uh getting a new job in a different industry compared to rethinking well there's another way of getting away from your boss which is to get your boss away from you <laughs> get 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 him and you perspective so and, yeah I, and, and you you know it's that's much safer than going on the internet and trying to find somebody to bump him off yeah <laughs> <laughs> that would be true. I, I think yeah. I, I generally uh, counsel my clients against trying to assassinate anybody. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, I, but I do. But I, I do think that uh, that working for somebody, working for a, a a guy you don't like, is that's painful. That I mean, and I can I can see that the the guy's obviously got uh you know his wife's not as emotionally attached to the decision because it's that's one of the other things is when you're emotionally attached to the decision it's very hard to look at it differently i i found if you're analyzing a technically different difficult problem you need people who are similar to you in the sense that they understand your problem as well but if you're trying to figure out whether it's framed correctly it actually helps to have somebody who's further away from it because weirdly enough we can be too close to our own problems to see them clearly so it's just tremendously helpful like the 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 general rule i have is that the more important the problem is to solve the more effort you should invest in pulling somebody in who is actually further away from you, like who doesn't have the same function or may work in the same function, but in a different company or, or just getting an outside perspective is really, really helpful. Like, like, like that story I shared as well. But, uh, and I think many people have, you know, they have a partner in their life somewhere that, where they've established a habit of kind of having discussions about problems, hopefully in a, hopefully in a productive way. But I, I think that can be really, really powerful. I, but there was, there's one, um, one sort of, I suppose, outside in problem I helped a client solve ages ago. They, they were a telco that had started doing hosting. And in the telco space, you always, you always invoice retrospectively. And in hosting, you would typically invoice in advance. And they, of course, went from being a telco into hosting and didn't look at the rest of the hosting industry. So they just were, they were doing their invoicing of their hosting division retrospectively, like they would just assume that that's how it would get done. And we're having this conversation with them about cash flow and bad debt. And I, and I just said, when do you invoice them? And they went, well, afterwards. And I went, well, why don't you do it like everybody else and invoice them in advance? And then you've got no bad debt problem. And and it was it, <laughs> it was just that sort of ka-ching, and they're like, oh, we never even thought that there might be a different model to do this. And it's just it, those are just they're brilliant because they take seconds to say and have a profound impact on people. And um, and really, there's no there's no cogn- there's no cognitive stress in in switching. But I as like literally two weeks ago, I had a similar conversation with a client where they had just always been kind of uh, pricing one of their products in a specific way. And uh, once they tried the new way, they they saw a dramatic increase in, in revenue from it. And they could have done that 20 years ago. 
Like they're, 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 it wasn't dependent on a new technology or like, wait, we have to get like blockchain involved. There are so many good ideas that we can actually go do with our existing technology if we're just willing to reconsider like the way we do things. <laughs> that, that, I love your example of saying, well, instead of worrying about bad debt, why don't we just invoice up front? And it's like, oh, you know, you might try it. You might find out it doesn't work with your clients. Great. Okay. That's a valid reason not to do it. But not trying it just because you've always done it the other way. That's not a valid reason. I think pricing is one of those where um, I think people are really, really, really stuck. Um, and so there's a client I did some work with two years ago now. And I said, look, I think you're too cheap. And they went, no, we can't possibly put the price up. And I said, okay, just humor me. Will you put the price up 1% this month? And we went back the next month and they said, um, I said, what, did anyone notice? They said, well, the salespeople noticed because they now have to look the price up because it's not a round number anymore. I said, yeah, but other than the salespeople, did anybody notice? Nope. Okay, well, just humor me. Put the price up again at 1% this month. So 12 months later, they put the price up every month for 12 months. And we got together and I said, how long have we done this for? They said, we've done this for a year now. You know, so it's like nearly 13% higher than it was a year ago. So then the, then the debate was, well, should we put the price up 5% a quarter because there would be less admin? And they decided that their customers might notice. So they went for 1.5% a month. And so they just got to the end of the second phase where they put it at one and a half percent a month for that. And they're just going to keep doing it until somebody notices. And and the reason that they wouldn't do it is because they had all of this story in their head about we can't charge more. Customers wouldn't sign. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and, and it's one of those things where people get very emotional about it. There, it, it, It's fascinating to me what that, that example, because it is just uh, – we make all these assumptions, like and and often like I well, I see examples of prices being set by by our internal cost, like it's cost plus, instead of really understanding wait what's the value that this is creating for a customer. Now, if you're in a commodities market, you know you you actually do have a fairly valid indication. But if your product isn't a commodity, there there's a decent chance that it creates a lot more value for your clients than you realize. That there's a there's a beautiful story I think is from. Uh, GE about this, where they, instead of pricing it at a specific point, they just go out and start collaborating with one client to really understand what difference that their solution makes for the client. And they realized that they could actually increase the price a hundredfold and still leave a good deal of value on the table for the client. Like such a common mistake. We anchor it in our own, like, well, you know, I make a tidy profit of this if I price it here. Instead of saying, you know, what is the alternative for the client? And, 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 you know, what type of value do we create? And what can we reasonably kind of, you know, take of, uh, of that extra value we're adding to the table? So classic example of uh, going in, truly taking their perspective, understanding their problem instead of focusing in, on your own problem. What reminded me thereof is Kickstarter. You know, on Kickstarter, you know, you've got the early bird pricing, then you've got the, but you've also often got the super fan. You know, uh, you know, pay five thousand dollars and you get the you get the T-shirt and you get the thing and you get dinner with the founders, and you know, there's one of those, but somebody always buys it. You know, and so there's so there's that opportunity to pull it all apart and say instead of paying instead of having one price for everybody, you know, could we could we tease this out and and um, huge value there in in coming up with differential pricing what i love about all of these examples are that they again it's not coming back to technology there's this automatic assumption we're making that innovation and new things is tied to a new technology that we're using in a smarter way that's true for some examples like the whole app universe with uh, you know uber and similar services did create a lot of innovation the vast majority of the innovations I see have nothing to do with new technology. It is literally just questioning our assumptions and testing our assumptions and trying experiments with new ways of addressing or to, uh, or working or whatever it is. That just makes it so much more accessible for everybody because not everybody can go in right now and experiment with blockchain, but you can go in and start 
tweaking what you do, trying something new, questioning what's really going on, understanding your customer's customer better or, or whatever it is. It's such a simple thing and it can really, really make a difference. Totally. Um, what, Thomas, what is it you know now that you could have known earlier <laughs> or wish you'd known uh, earlier or it might have been fun if you'd known earlier? I think the focus on simplicity i you know coming from uh, an academic space there's a premium there on complexity and kind of nuance and oh but there's this like important little detail about how things work the more i worked with people in practice and kind of sharing this method with people the more i've realized that the key to under make people understand complex things is a, a simple bridgehead or spearhead <laughs> tip of the spear if you will like the story with the Elevate I just shared, you can explain that to somebody in 45 seconds. And it is an immensely powerful vehicle for getting people to understand, oh, there's this thing about framing and are we asking the right questions or solving the right problems? So I think earlier in my career, I hadn't understood how powerful a truly simple example or, or story can be. I think that would have changed the, the way I had done a lot of things had I, you know, with my first book as well, had I understood that earlier. Yeah, it's easy to remember. So a whole team of people can hear the story, remember the story, use the story to keep correcting themselves. And so in itself, it sort of encapsulates the tool. Very, very, very powerful. Um, what, uh, what other books have you read along the way that have influenced you or you think people should pick up and read? I have a habit of reading uh, things that are very much outside my own field. So, for instance, for, for a long period of time, I really got into evolutionary biology, which has very little to do with what I, what I kind of dabble in. Um, I, I get more energy from that than I do from uh, anything that's in my field. Um, I would say one thing I've recently read, uh, I've, I've started to read a lot of biographies. Um, and I found that they're really inspiring. So one example is on a shelf behind me right now, The Price of Peace uh, about uh, John Maynard Keynes, or uh, Keynes, I, I don't remember how he's pronounced. Um, the famous economist who's kind of huge impact. I find it so fascinating to read the story, and it's very well written, about how this character just comes onto the scene and like at a young age, he just... The way he thinks about his field starts, he starts giving him tremendous influence in like economics as a discipline. Like he was one of the people who really put it on the map. And it is hard now to find a nation who's not in, in effect governed partially by economists. I found it inspiring because I think it's, it's kind of a reminder to myself and to all of us who's kind of like, you can actually lead an epic life. <laughs> you, you know, there, there, there is sometimes uh, an opportunity to have a big impact on on what you're doing or, or like or the, the world maybe not the entire world uh, not everybody gets to do that but like in your field or like what whatever space you move around in there are sometimes people that go in and change the way we think about things or like you, you become the teacher of an entire field or of humanity or whatever and that I find that inspiring because especially during COVID, I think it's easy to kind of sink into the happy mediocrity of our own lives. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's easy just to go day by day and doing the same thing. We, we've been forced to do it in a sense, but I don't know. I, uh, that, that, that inspires me. So biographies and very specifically a recommendation, namely that thing, uh, the price of peace. What else, what else you got on your bookshelf that you have enjoyed reading? Uh, I'd say from a business side, I've, I've really like every, some of the early books of the Heath brothers. I really enjoy like decisive in particular that, so you know, that's about decision-making. It's a great compliment to, uh, to my own book around reframe is kind of, they are very good kind of the storytellers going in and sharing the science behind decision-making, but in a really memorable way. And I find myself using some of the lessons from that book fairly frequently so uh chip heath and dan heath decisive uh great book um and what else what have i recently been reading now i'm looking back and i'm kind of i'm i'm really getting into storytelling at the moment and reading about different archetypical plots and and similar and that's just a personal interest i have uh which, which is kind of 
I can't really connect that to anything apart from, hey, this interests me. Why are we wired to really get stories? And is there maybe something I can link that to in my own work? Um, so I, I would, that, does yeah. that does that come is that does that link back to evolutionary biology as well? That sort of I think why do we right. end why do we why do we end up telling stories has to be a reason. I think it does. If, like, it, uh, if it didn't give us an advantage, storytellers would have died out already. I mean, it was basically in our pre-written past. It was the way you learned from other people, right? It was the format in which you understood, hey, you know, that mushroom might look delicious, but don't eat it, <laughs> you know? Uh, or like, if you run into a bear, here's what you should and shouldn't do. Like, we just hardwired to listen to stories and find them interesting. And I, uh, this is a personal, uh, so I, I came out from the humanities. I did a master first master's degree in, in film and media science. And I love bad movies because I'm always interested in why they don't work. Like there's this story you hear, you watch the movie and you put the protagonist in a really interesting place. And then they, there's a cop out in the storytelling. Like, um, Beautiful example. This is slightly, this is a, it'll take a minute to, to share about. There's an 80s ski movie called Aspen Extreme. And it is about a guy from a middle class guy and his best friend. And they get to go to Aspen for some reason. And they get to ski with all the rich people. And this is like, this is the 80s. So rich is good, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there's this beautiful conflict that the, uh, he's put in, namely, he really gets along with this new crowd. It's everything he wants to be, but his friend doesn't. The friend is a loser and he doesn't fit in with all the new folks and like really interesting dilemma to put your protagonist in. And then the movie solves it by killing the friend in an avalanche. Which is like, <laughs> that's a cop out. You just robbed the protagonist of a really interesting choice that I'm that I want to see how he resolves, and you just got uh, done. You know, okay, you you're rid with the losers now gone. You can cry a bit, and now you can party with your friends. It's kind of like no. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> that's what I think about <laughs> what I don't write books. Uh, <laughs> very good, Thomas. Thank you very much indeed for giving us your time today. It's been fantastic having you on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a ton, Dominic. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.